already. This is the closing chapter in a series, I think, of something like 35 sermons that Liam has uh, preached over the last 12 months or so. Um, very kind of him to allow me to preach this one. Um, this will probably be the last time that I'll preach in Charlotte Chapel, uh, certainly for a long time to come. I feel a little bit like Captain Von Trapp saying that, you know, like fellow Austrians. No, no. Um, since, since Paul and Liam have done, and Andy actually have sung, maybe I should just get a guitar and do a little bit of Edelweiss or something. But uh, Now, I've been at Charlotte Chapel for six years on staff, and uh, it's been a great joy. But the Lord has called uh, my wife and myself to a church in Northern Ireland, and we'll be going there in, in the ensuing months. I've got about four or five weeks left here at Charlotte Chapel, and it's a great pleasure just to open God's Word to you tonight and to read through um, the account of what Jesus is about. So let's do that together. Uh, John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some." When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed... They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, 
you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's just bow in prayer for a moment before we look at this together, shall we? Heavenly Father, you know how much I need your help tonight. And Lord, you know how much these dear people need your help to embrace your truth. And so we ask our Father, who's in heaven, the one whose name is holy and above all things, that you would send your Holy Spirit into our lives that we might embrace the truth about Jesus and see him glorified. In our midst we pray in his name. Amen. Well, the title of tonight's sermon is called Saved to Serve. Um, the key verse that's dominated our sermon series in John if you just turn back to the previous chapter there in John 20 and verse 31. But these are written that you may um, believe, some manuscripts have continued to believe, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we've had that uh, sort of unpacked for us several times in, during the last year. But let's just remind ourselves that we believe that Jesus, who was born of a Virgin Mary, real flesh and blood, a fully man-man, he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Anointed One, he's the Son, the Eternal Son of God, nothing less than that. He is fully man, he is fully God, and that we don't simply have, by believing in his name, some sort of spiritual or religious faith that is completely detached from the reality of our 24 7 365 days a year experience. The fact that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in him we have life in his name, and that life isn't a passive thing, it's a, it's a full experience that I have in Jesus because of what I believe in him. And what I believe about Jesus and his life and his work, that ought to be reflected in, in amidst 
life's trials, it ought to be reflected in my behavior. It ought to be reflected in my conversations with others. Um, Because we don't simply have this detached experience. We have a relationship with God that, that touches and affects the relationships that I have with lost people and with lost people who get found in the way that I care for them. And as we've studied through the Gospel of John, um, I haven't asked Liam about this, but it's come across again and again and again in his preaching, that as we studied John, what stands out for me is not a truth about Jesus. What stands out for me is not a doctrine concerning the ministry of Jesus. What stands out for me every time we come to John is that Jesus stands out. That's what the gospel's for. You see, this this book is full of a whole lot of stuff that we can study. But the most important thing that you and I can do with this book is to read it, not that we can understand doctrine, but we read it because this book, and this book alone, gets us to Jesus. And Jesus alone gets us to the Father. And the Father alone sends us the Holy Spirit that he might glorify Jesus in our lives and that we might speak to others. Not about doctrinal niceties and truths and how church ought to be run, but that we might communicate the heart of the gospel message, which is Jesus himself. Jesus, the Son of God, is the center of this message. And in him and in him alone that we find that we have our sins dealt with, our lives are reborn from above. This is all in this gospel. Our legal state is changed from being condemned to being pardoned. Our religious experience changed from being a human self-effort to a Holy Spirit-filled and empowered experience. Our darkness is changed to light. Our relationships with God and with each other is changed from hostility to harmony. Our destiny is changed from hell to heaven. And all because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. Now, there are other important themes in this gospel, and we've studied them together over the last 12 months. Um, Notably, there is a lot about eternal life. There is quite a lot about belief or saving faith. There's a significant amount of teaching and, and, and instruction in here about the Holy Spirit. But all of these things only have relevance because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we gain an open mind that we can understand the gospel understand the gospel message, but more than that, we gain an understanding of how God wants to fulfill his purpose in our lives. And that's why I've called this sermon, Save to Serve, because I truly believe that the gospel of John and elsewhere in scripture teaches us that following Jesus affects our beliefs, but it also has to impact upon our behavior, has to affect our behavior. You see, by this gospel, we are saved. That's why I had Liam read to us from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're saved from the old sinful life that is condemned to eternal punishment. And we're saved into a new life that will live on beyond the grave. We're, we're saved into an eternal, an eternal inheritance in Christ. This life in Christ is an active experience. We're born again by His Spirit. We're filled and led by His Spirit. We're united together with other believers into one body, the church, and that collectively is empowered by His Spirit, even as we're thinking this morning, to be witnesses and to work for Him. And even as the Father sent Jesus into the world, 
to seek and to save that which is lost. So Jesus says, as those who will come after me and follow in the, the teaching that I give, so I am sending you as individuals and collectively as the church into the harvest field to seek and to save the lost. And when the lost are found or they're caught, then our work of caring for them continues until they've been rooted and established in Christ. And together with all the saints, grasp the magnitude. We're reading that in Ephesians this morning and the implications of Christ's love for them, that they too, the new born-again believers, might become equipped as harvest workers seeking to save other lost people. So as I come to the main body of what John has to say, let me put up two statements. Life in Christ is being saved from our spiritually unproductive, rebellious, sinful past and saved for our spiritually fruitful and obedient, holy future. We are saved to serve. That's what it means to have life in his name. You're made alive by the Spirit of God to go and work for Jesus in his world. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? That God would take people like you and me and turn our lives around in such a way and he would give us his power. More than that, he would give him, God would give us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to live in us. So that rather than the Christian life becoming an arduous, heavy duty, it's actually the easiest thing to do. My wife and I are reading a book just now by Eugene Peterson. And our reflection in it last night was just that actually, you know, for a Christian, the hardest thing to do is to sin. Because it's alien to our new life in Jesus. It's contrary to the new nature that he gives us, the hardest thing for a follower of Jesus should be the sin. The easiest thing is just to follow him and to do what he wants us to do if our lives are truly open to him. And that's the life that we have in Jesus. And three things I want to say about that tonight. It's a life that will be marked out by verses 1 to 11, compliance with Christ's commands. Uh, I think looking around the room here tonight, most of you, I think I, I've got to know you over the past few years, know something of your salvation story. I think you're familiar with the story. You know how, you know, Jesus has already appeared to some of the disciples in Jerusalem. They've gone up to the Galilee where he told them to go. And uh, they're just kind of hanging around. Not quite sure, I don't think, what they're supposed to do next, even though he's told them. And Peter says, well, he's kind of the natural leader, it would appear. He says, I'm going fishing. And the other six that are with him that day, they said, well, yeah, well, we'll come too. You know, there's, there's an inference from, in the original language, that the boat, with a strong, definite article, maybe this is Peter's own fishing boat. It's not just some random boat. This is his. This is what he made his, his, um, his money with before Jesus, three years before it said, Peter, leave everything and come and follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. The implications are that that boat's still there and Peter goes, well... I'm getting back in my boat and I'm going fishing. And the other guy said, well, we'll just come with you. You know, uh, there's lots and lots of uh, ink being spilt over. Some of the, the things that we're encouraged by the commentators to, to draw out of this account. But personally, I think that to concentrate on Peter's action, to try to interpret whether his motives uh, is right or wrong, is, is pretty much a waste of time. 
Sure, there's a group of guys who are in a boat. They've spent a fruitless night out in the Sea of Galilee, but that isn't the main subject of the story. Look at verse 4. Look who's standing on the shore. Do you see him? In the scripture, it's Jesus. Sure, there's a group of guys out fishing, but Jesus is standing on the shore. Uh, And as I delved into the text this week, desperately trying to figure out what I would come and teach you tonight, dude, I just couldn't take my eyes off that figure on the shore. Jesus is standing there, folks. Oh, sure, there's a group of guys who are being unproductive. Um, sure, there's some kind of miracle takes place. And, and sure, there's 153 fish. And, and man, the commentators have fun trying to tell us what that figure stands for. But Jesus is standing on the shore. I, I must have sat for a full two hours this week just pondering the implications of the fact that Jesus is there. This is the Jesus who was crucified. This is the Jesus who was put away in the tomb. And he's standing on the shore watching his egg head disciples fish I was just blown away by that Jesus Jesus touched down on planet earth he really did come from God full of grace and truth they really did behold his glory and his majesty and his power he stood there I was sharing with some of the the guys earlier on today that some years ago I I led I guess it was a pilgrimage thing a tour if you like uh, of a group of folks who wanted to go to Israel to visit some of the holy sites. And um, there's lots and lots of interesting things to see and do there. But I, I, I found myself on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, leading this group of pilgrims or, or, or you know, spiritual tourists, whatever they are. And I was trying to get their attention because we're at a place called Tabka, and it's traditionally the, sp- the place where Jesus is supposed to have reinstated Peter. And I had this group of people all standing gawking around, looking at churches and pictures and looking up towards the Golan Heights and all this sort of thing. And I needed to get their attention because I wanted to share the story from John's Gospel. And they were, well, weren't paying attention. So I, I picked up my Bible and I stood out in a little pinnacle of rock between them and the, and the Sea of Galilee. And I opened up my Bible and it just suddenly, Jesus stood here. The man from heaven, 2,000 years ago, he was here, and he's still here by his spirit. You see, as you look at that man on the shore, that's what I believe John would have us concentrate on. Was Peter right or wrong for returning to his old way of life? Were the others right or wrong for joining him? Uh, Do you know, I couldn't care less. (laughs) Because Jesus is standing there, and he calls out to them, friends. Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said to them, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now just pause and consider for a moment with me the implications of these two verses, written that, as we know from John 21, from John 20, sorry, 31, that that. They're written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in his name. 
So what are these two verses? Well, let's use that interpretive tool that our pastor Paul has introduced to us as a church. You know, what, so what, now what? Well, we've already seen it. There's a man on the shore. He's asked some people who he calls friends of the Courtney fish. The blokes in their boat say, no, there isn't. Then the man on the shore says, throw your net over that side of the boat. It's the starboard one. And the blokes on the boat do as they're instructed. That's the what of it. What's the so what? Well, there's a result. And well, what a result. The net is so full of fish that they can't land it on board. Here's an observation in the so what for me. The fishermen were unsuccessful until they obeyed the instructions from the man on the shore. And having done what he said, they caught a large amount of fish. Two questions the commentators ask was, was this a miraculous event or a natural event? Did Jesus see a shoal of fish from the vantage position on the shore? It's a technique still employed in the Sea of Galilee today. You can go there and visit it. I'll lead your tour. And you can see it for yourself. Or did he, as the creator of all things, steer the fish into the net by means of divine intervention? Do you know, I don't think that's really the questions we should be asking. Because what's the now what of interpreting these few verses? What a difference, what difference can the context of this story have upon your life or my life? Well, what are you doing right now? Well, you're listening to me, hopefully. I mean in the wider context of your life. What are you doing right now? What do you spend your time, your talent, and your energy on day by day? Are you producing fruit in your life that's consistent with being a spirit-filled follower of Jesus? Is the evidence of the Spirit's residence reflected in the increasing production of love and joy and peace Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life? Does your ability to bear witness to the saving power of the gospel reflect increasingly the supernatural dynamic gifts of the Holy Spirit who clothes you with power from above? Or are you, even as a Christian, pretty much just living the same lifestyle that you did before you became a Christian? Do you still pursue ungodly relationships among the same type of people that you hung around with before you responded to God's call upon your life? Well, if that's the case, look again at verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing it full of fish. You see, there's a man. You may not recognize him at first, but he's standing, observing you in your life. Whatever you do, whenever you do it, in whosever company you're spending your time, there's a man. And his name is Jesus, and he's looking at your life. He's desperately trying to get your attention. You're so unproductive. He's so unfruitful. He's trying to get your attention. He's got something that he wants to say to you. He wants you to heed his instruction. He wants you to act upon it. You see, after all, he has called you to a life of fruitfulness, not to a life of emptiness or barrenness. 
He's called you into this life. It's a full, it's an abundant life. He wants you to reproduce yourself spiritually in the lives of many, many other lost people. But he just can't get your attention. Maybe you're at that place in your life where you feel that your sins prevent you from becoming a follower of Jesus. You know, we hear it all the time as pastors. Oh, he could never forgive me. I'm too bad. I'm not good enough. Well, I've got some really good news for you. You can't ever be too bad for Jesus to save you. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Jesus saves as the man who brought me back to faith called out my faith from he saves to the guttermost. You can't have done anything so bad that Jesus can't save you. The other flip side of that good news is that you can never ever be good enough to save yourself. So if you're not a Christian, the Lord is standing near to your life tonight. Recognize him. Leave behind everything and everyone and taking the first step of confessing your sin and your need of a Savior. Simply come to him. If you are a Christian, the Lord is standing near to your life. Recognize him and leave behind everything and everyone and taking the next step in faith obediently follow him wherever he may be leading you you see compliance to his commands is a mark of your new life in him in verses 12 through 17 i see that there is great compassion in the heart of the person who's got a new life in jesus compassion for jesus church these verses assure us of the certainty of the disciples' faith. It's based on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 12, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. As the finished work of Christ on the cross is key to our salvation, being saved from our sin, being pardoned from our iniquity. So I believe that Jesus rising from the dead, his resurrection is key to us having this new life in him. Jesus died that I might be forgiven for my sin, but he rose again that I might have new life in him. And I was raised to new life in Jesus in order to serve God and his people. You see, the main expression of new life in Christ is fellowship with God, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with all of God's children. I don't think we necessarily need to read the overtones of sacrament of the Lord's Supper into this breakfast that Jesus shares with his disciples. But surely the disciples' minds would have gone back to that recently observed Passover meal where Jesus reinterprets the significance of bread and wine as symbolically representing his body and blood as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Again, there's lots of time and effort and much paper and ink being used to underline the subtle meaning of these verses that record the interaction between Jesus and Peter. And I don't have the time nor the inclination this evening to go there. But you know what these verses reminded me of this week again as I, as I read them and reread them. As I see Peter in dialogue with Jesus and Jesus asking Peter just in an overwhelming sense again of how much Jesus loves his church. How much Jesus loves each one of you. He loves me as an individual follower, as one of his sheep. Jesus loves you. 
Can you hear his concern? It's, it's his compassion for you in his questions to Peter. See, this is the Peter who had previously declared that even if all others should abandon Jesus, he would never do such a thing. Peter was effectively saying that whatever the job was, that he was up for it, and that Jesus would be able to depend on him even though all others would let him down. Do you remember from chapter 10? Remember Liam teaching this so clearly. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Before him, all others who have come have behaved like hired men who ran away at the first sign of danger or hardship. And all subsequent under-shepherds, pastors, elders in the church are to behave in like manner to Jesus, being willing as evidence of their love for Jesus to self-sacrificially love Jesus' followers, even to the degree of laying down their lives for the flock. Do you know it's hard to come across pastors these days who are willing to die for the flock? It's just far too common to find local churches that darn near kill their pastors. But that's not the same thing. Can I make a plea to you? It's not from Scripture, but it's from my heart. Members of Charlotte Chapel, please hear me clearly on this. Do you know, it's no small thing, it's no insignificant thing for a pastor or an elder to be committed to serving you in this way. I can say this because I'm leaving. I can say lots of things because I'm leaving. Your pastor, your pastors, your elders, God did not place them here for you to criticize, for you to complain about, for you somehow to think that you could do a better job than they could. He put them here, as he has with me for the last six years. He put us here to serve you and to serve you sometimes very sacrificially. And your response to that, if indeed you are a follower of Jesus, your response to that ought to be one of joyful submission and cooperation with your leaders. Leaders, as fellow elders, can you also please hear me on this? It is consistent with your calling to serve that you will sacrifice your natural desires and preferences for the sake of the needs of the members. Scholars are divided about what these are in the Jesus questions in verse 15. And whatever these are that Jesus challenges Peter about his love, uh, about his love for him over these, please observe the humility by which Peter responds. We've already said that just a few weeks ago, this is the Peter who would have said, if Jesus said, and Peter, do you love me? Oh, you bet. He'd be full of bravado. Jesus, I love you. You having a go? Man, I love you far, far more than John does. I love you. Oh, absolutely. And, and the things of this world, I love you far, far more than all of them. 
I love you even more than my own life. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. That's how much I love you. What a difference a few weeks makes in the life of a true believer. Let's read these verses again and going straight to the now what interpretation of Scripture. Let's imagine that the Jesus who was previously standing at a distance to our lives a few minutes ago is now standing right in front of you. He's looking you right in the eye and he's putting these questions not to Peter, he's putting them to you. Remember he caught your eye recently just after you'd let him down and denied him? Even though you knew that you had been self-promoting and confident that you would never fail him even if others did. Jesus is speaking these words to you. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, but he says it to me through the words of Scripture. He says it to you through the words of Scripture. Do you truly love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. You see, he does know. Jesus knows realistically and honestly. He knows right now where he is in the scale of affections in your heart. Do you love him? You might say you do. But Jesus, who searches both heart and mind, knows where he is on the scale of your affection. He knows where he is on the scale of my affection. Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. Isn't it true that in the church there are young and infant-like people who need to be nurtured on the digestible, milky truth of God's word? before they can be weaned onto the meatier truths that will strengthen their developing minds and nourish the strength of their flexing spiritual muscles. Jesus knows if pastors and teachers are ready to constrain themselves and provide a balanced feeding program that will satisfy the needs of the lambs rather than enhance or show off the culinary academic brilliance of the teacher. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I, I personally don't think we're to read too much into the variance of words used for love here. They're used completely interchangeably elsewhere, even in John's gospel. I think the emphasis is to reflect on the three-stage denial, and maybe that's a principle for us, that we know that we deal with private sins in private, and public sins need public confession. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. You see, again in the church, there are the weak and the vulnerable who need the compassion of a Jesus-like shepherd who is willing to trudge off into the darkness of the night of the sinful world in all types of hostile weather and into dangerous territory to fight and to contend for their eternal safety. Members of Charlotte Chapel, what your pastors and elders do for you is no light thing. It's no trivial thing. I spend a lot of time with these men, and they would fight for you. They do fight for you. They contend for your faith in the spiritual warfare as they pray over you, as they seek to minister to you the best that they can according to the ability that God has given them. The third time Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Look at verse 17. Peter was hurt 
Do you know that word hurt means to make sorrowful, to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to, to offend, to make one uneasy? Peter was uneasy. He was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I wonder, have you ever been hurt or offended by Jesus? Maybe you've been hurt or offended by the challenge that's come through the preacher who's representing the teaching of Jesus to you. You ever been hurt by that? Good. Good. I'm glad that you're offended. Because do you know what? As I read the Gospels, I see that Jesus is deeply, deeply offended by my sin. He's deeply offended by my self-confidence. He's deeply offended by my lack of self-awareness. He's offended by me thinking, I know I can do it mentality. Like me, you're poor, wretched, and blind. You have nothing to give Jesus. You can only receive. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, in the church, there are people of all ages and stages. And do you know what? Some are an absolute joy to serve. Others drain every ounce of your energy. They stretch and strain every fiber of your physical, mental, and spiritual makeup. I have served people in the church for whom I have wept and cried and spent endless amounts of nights just desperately disturbed on their behalf. And a shepherd cannot pick and choose which ones he should feed or care for. You see, whosoever will may come into the fold of the good shepherd, and all under shepherds must feed and care for all of them with the compassion of Christ. Compassion for Christ's church is a mark of your new life in him. And finally, we need to be committed to Jesus' call, verses 18 through 25. The remaining few verses of this chapter, well, kind of reveal a typical Peter-esque moment, don't they? You know, sooner has, has Peter been reinstated. It's, uh, <laughs> you've just got to love Peter, haven't you? Because he's just so much like us. You've just had this amazing spiritual encounter with the risen Jesus. He's just blessed you in ways that you know you don't deserve. He's just filled you up with his spirit and his grace, and he's commissioned you, and he's given you purpose in life. And then he just says very simply to you, so just keep following me now. Just do as I ask you. That's what he did with Peter. And no sooner had he done that, Peter turns around and sees John, the beloved disciple, falling out and goes, well, if I'm to die and glorify you now, what about him? What about him? Do you know, if there ever was a question to draw you short in your new life discipleship walk, ask that question. Instead of just keeping your eyes on Jesus and following him, look around you in the church and go, what about him? What about her? Did you see what he was wearing on Sunday morning? Did you see what she wasn't wearing on Sunday morning? Brother or sister in Christ, Get your eyes off Jesus and start complaining about what somebody else is or isn't doing and you'll soon scupper your discipleship walk. 
your new life will be like it never began. That's what happened to Peter. Gets his eyes off the ball and then wham, penalty. Remember Jesus, sorry again, Peter, just a few weeks before had confidently assured Jesus of his loyalty. And he had done so at the expense of comparing himself with the other disciples. Peter thought, Jesus thought all others would abandon you. Not me. I'm your man. I'll never let you down. So Jesus looks at him and says, you know what? A few weeks ago you said you would die for me. Well, you're gonna. Traditionally, the church history records it that Peter was taken out. He was led in ways that he didn't want to go. He was crucified. He couldn't identify fully with his Lord in crucifixion, so they crucified him upside down. Peter would die a death that would glorify God. And his mistake was to turn around and look at another believer and say, what about them? What about them, Lord? Maybe you're going through something just right now. Maybe the Lord's got his hand upon you. Maybe you're going through a difficult passage and you're toiling and you're suffering. And you're going, what about them? (laughs) Can I with great deal of compassion for you and them tell you it's none of your business absolutely none of your business what God is doing in the life of another what you need to be concerned about is the way that he's leading you Jesus reply to you simply would be what is that to you you must follow me commitment to his call is a mark of your new life in him and with this I really do close It's my final, final, finally in Charlotte Chapel, maybe for a long time. Do you know when you get a new car? I got one just this last couple of weeks. Uh, The Grey Minis persecuted me today. They gave me a sticker. They said parking fine, but apparently it wasn't. So um, I've got to pay a fixed penalty charge next week sometime. Or you get an electrical appliance, maybe for Christmas. You get the big comprehensive manual. Well, I've kind of tried tonight to take you through a chapter in the comprehensive manual about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to have new life in him. But before I go, let me give you the quick start guide. It's Discipleship for Dummies, one-on-one. Do you want to know how to be a good disciple who experiences new life in Christ? Well, do as you're told. Be consistent in your care of everyone in God's family and mind your own business. Let's pray.